Luke chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 18. This is not just a word about God. Let us remember that this is the very word of God. And it happened as he was praying alone that his disciples joined him and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this, your holy word. And we pray that we would receive it now. Receive it with open hearts, though some things be hard to hear. We pray that we would practice these things in our lives, stored up for the glory of your name. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking, as I said, at verses 23 through 27 this morning. 23 begins with a, a phrase, he said to them all. And the first thing we need to consider is who the all is. Uh, remember, according to John 6, the crowds have all already left. So it isn't that in the previous verses we looked at last week, he was just talking to the 12. And then he turned and said to all these other people who were there. The, the point that Luke is making is that Peter had given the answer for the 12. But what Christ says in response isn't just for Peter. Peter, you need to go pick up a cross and follow me. We know Peter did pick up a cross and follow Christ. He would, in the end, be crucified. He would be crucified upside down, not wanting to be sacrilegious in his mind, that, that, it, that it would have the potential for people to mistake his crucifixion, if it was a normal one, with Christ's and think that he had died the same type of death as Christ, and so he asked to be hung upside down, a much more painful death in some ways, because 
the cross needed to be distinct. So we know that Peter would follow Christ in picking up the cross. But it isn't just Peter that Christ is saying this to. He says it to them all, all 12. And 11 of them will listen, right? He says to 12, if anyone desires to come after me, and 11 come after him. Judas also is included in the all here. If you will come after me, and he doesn't. So that's the context here. It's those who profess to be disciples. Well, in that sense, we profess to be disciples. And so he is speaking to us as well this morning. Remember the context which we read, Christ asking, who do the crowd say I am? But who do you say that I am? He makes the apostles say outright what they believe, and they get the answer right. You're the Messiah. Then he clarifies a few things for them. Their view of the, the Messiah was the same that all the Jews had, of a triumphal uh, Messiah who, who's going to have nothing but a, a, a glorious earthly kingdom from day one. And Christ says, you, you're right that I'm the Messiah, but the Messiah must suffer, must be rejected, and must die. He must suffer before he has the royal throne. He must have the cross before he has the royal crown. Well, if that's the case for the Messiah, if this is the type of Messiah, the Isaiah's vision of the Messiah, if this is the Messiah, then what should his disciples expect out of life? If the Messiah is one who will expect suffering to precede glory, then what should the disciples expect out of life? Well, we ought to expect suffering before glory as well. And that's exactly what Christ does here. He takes the apostles from considering what type of Messiah he will be in the previous verses now to think about what type of disciple we must be. He will present them with suffering here and sorrow now with glory and rest later. Uh, So I want to think this morning first about uh, three aspects of what this suffering looks like. Three, Three aspects of what this suffering looks like according to Christ in our text here. The the first aspect of disciple suffering is self Denial. If anyone would desire to come after me, let him deny himself. Does it strike you as odd that our thoughts about suffering start internally? We tend to think about all of our suffering as coming about because of out there. I suffer because I'm righteous and they are after me which may be very true. But when we start with thinking about our suffering as disciples because of external causes, we can slide into having an attitude in life that we are victims. We can have a rather mopey attitude when life is hard because everyone's out to get me. 
And Christ starts talking about disciple suffering internally. If you would come after me, you must suffer first by denying yourself. And that is a kind of suffering, isn't it? Denying ourselves. Is, you know, self-denial, as Christ is talking about here, is more than, Nathan, don't eat five cookies during Sunday school today. I denied myself having five cookies during Sunday school. I only had three. Hopefully I don't have three or, or maybe even any. Denying ourselves food and, and cookies particularly for some of us might be a part of what is necessary to deny ourselves as disciples. For me, maybe that's an important part. But... but when we think of self-denial as just the thing we give up, this is my problem with, with evangelicals liking Lent, which has only ever been a Catholic. It's no biblical basis. It's just Catholic. And all of a sudden, Protestants want to start engaging in it. And of course, we tweak it. We're not doing it the way the Catholics do it. I actually don't know as much about how the Catholics do it as I personally do about how Protestants think we're doing it. But the problem is, 365 days, did you have a sin you needed to confess? Then confess it. Deny that part of yourself. Don't wait for one part of the year right before Easter to, to deny yourself those sins. And don't confuse giving up fish for a few weeks with the need to stop lying or stop lusting or start respecting, or start honoring, or give up something that is sin itself. So so when Christ is talking about self-denial here, it may include giving up things to diet because you're overweight or something. It might. It might include any sort of thing like that that is the the minimal, but we tend to reduce self-denial down to these little, little things. Hear how one commentator defines self-denial. He says self-denial, this is a paraphrase, I'm sorry, I don't have the quote, but he says in essence, self-denial is apostatizing from the false religion of the egocentric self. Okay, I have to break that down, don't I? Apostatizing, what's apostatizing? It is having professed a certain religion or faith and then turning away from it and walking away. So this commentator is saying that we we have a false religion, the egocentric self, me, that I idolatize myself. I worship myself by nature. And self-denial is apostatizing from that false religion of Nathan Tomlinson so that I might follow Christ. Well, it seems, based on that definition, that it's quite obvious if we would follow Christ as disciples, we must begin with self-denial. We must stop worshiping ourselves. And in some ways, that type of self-denial is far harder, far harder, than the type of suffering my neighbor might throw my direction at America where I have all sorts of religious liberties. 
far harder. Matthew Henry puts it plainly. He says, we must live a life of self-denial, mortification that is putting to death of sin, and contempt of the things of the world. We must not indulge in our ease and appetite, for then it will be hard to bear toil, weariness, and want for Christ. Disciple suffering must start with self-denial. This is painful. By the way, it's a daily activity as well, isn't it? It isn't step one. Then we can turn to step two of discipleship. I've done it. I've said goodbye to self. This is why Paul, long into his Christian experience, will say the things that I hate I do and the things that I long to do I I don't do. That I, I still fight with the old man, the old Paul, even though I'm renewed in Christ Jesus. So, To be a disciple of Christ requires daily self-denial, daily turning away from the religion of self. And we, we ought to expect that that internal start to discipleship suffering will lead to the next part, the external suffering. Because when you live in a manner of self-denial for the glory of Christ, those who still are worshiping themselves will find your life convicting. When we suppress the truth and unrighteousness and worship ourselves, anyone who walks in righteous humility before God is a living testimony of our own idolatry. So we start with self-denial. But then the second aspect of disciple or Christian suffering, if you prefer, would be cross-carrying. Take up your cross and carry it. Now, I I want to think about cross-carrying in two ways. Uh, First, I want to think of it as a metaphor for all Christian hardship. But then I want us to think about it literally. So so first, the way we tend to think of it, we don't worry that the cops are going to come in here and drag one of us out, hand a, uh, put a cross on our shoulder and say, walk up that hill, we're going to execute you. And so for us, we hear, bear your cross for Christ, we think metaphor. Metaphor for suffering and pain for the gospel. And that's fine. It's probably not what Christ meant in that moment, but it's certainly taught throughout the scriptures that we ought to be prepared for such hardships. Um, So we think of cross-bearing as a metaphor for all of our pain, all of our suffering. And when we think of it that way, we need to remember The scriptures don't praise those who pull down the world's uh, animosity on themselves. We we need to remember that. Remember, 
I know when I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, I referred to Martin Lloyd-Jones making this point quite beautifully in his book. And you should go and read it in the Sermon on the Mount by Lloyd-Jones if you haven't read it. He makes the point that it is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Not those who are persecuted because they're obnoxious. Because they pick fights. And Lloyd-Jones has like eight other wonderful examples of the ways that we bring down persecution, crosses on ourselves. But that's not what Christ is talking about. He's talking about when for righteousness sake, because we love Christ and are wanting to follow him, the world therefore hates us. Remember what Ezekiel and and Jeremiah actually both tell those who are going into exile in Babylon. In a variety of places in the prophets, the people going into Babylon are told that they are to seek to live peaceably. They're to desire to just live among communities and the example that they have be like Daniel praying, living for Christ, not bowing to the idols, but not going around being obnoxious. I think we need to have more of that mentality in our own culture. If, if you're just humbly, graciously righteous for Jesus' sake, the world will hate you enough. We don't, we don't need to add more to it. The world will hate you for being gracious, for being kind, for sharing the gospel in a patient manner. We don't need to beg for it. So Christ calls us to carry our crosses for his sake metaphorically typically is how we do that through just having people dislike us or maybe someone at work keep you from promotion or someone not invite you to something because everyone else is invited to because you're the Christian they don't want you there or any number of other things like that or treat you here's one I think a lot of you probably get treat you like you're some kind of country bumpkin idiot because you believe certain things. Talk down to you because obviously you don't really understand science or life. We are to uh, carry these burdens. But I, I think it's important for us to note that what Christ is almost certainly saying here, first and foremost, is literal. The disciples had no conception of a metaphorical statement, carry your cross. For them, all it meant in their age was the Romans breaking down your door, taking you to trial, beating you, putting a massive heavy cross on your back and making you carry that cross out of the city to a a, a place where they will execute you. You had to carry your Uh, your tool of execution to the place of execution. And when Christ said that, the disciples, 
But why do you think the disciples shrink back so much? Why do you think they say, it can't possibly be this? Even in one place, Peter, in essence, saying, Jesus, you need to stop it. It's because he's telling them not only they, but also he will literally experience execution. And so just because we're so familiar with this, this metaphor of carrying our cross, I was thinking about other ways a similar thing might be said in different cultures. In different cultures or different periods of history, it might sound something like this. Be ready to gather the firewood, pile it up and step onto it. Be prepared to sharpen the axe and then lay your head down on the block. Be, be ready to tie the noose and throw it over the branch and put your head in. Be prepared to plug in that cord and sit on the electric chair. None of these, of course, in the sense that we are to pursue martyrdom, try to be killed, but Christ is really saying to the disciples, every morning, wake up ready to go to your execution if you would follow me. Praise God, for most of us, that probably won't happen. Who knows? But are you ready every day? Are you prepared every day, if it comes to it, to go to your place of execution? If you would follow me, pick up your cross daily and follow. And then the third aspect here is following Christ. I know I've been saying that throughout this whole sermon. I'm really trying to make this point because it's Christ's point here. You will experience a variety of sufferings in your life, won't you? Not all of them are what Christ is talking about here. We experience suffering because we live in a fallen world with decaying bodies. So does every pagan in this community. That's not uniquely a disciple thing. We will experience, we will experience some brokenness of relationships not because we acted righteously, but because we sinned. And so we will suffer because of the consequences of our own sins, our own failures. Here he's specifically talking about the suffering of discipleship being what discipleship always is, following Christ, following the teacher, the leader. Christ must be rejected, he said. Well, then his disciples must reject and deny themselves. Somewhat equivalent, isn't it? Christ must be killed. So he said, therefore, his disciples must also be ready 
to be killed and pick up their cross, if that is the call of our Savior. Christ must suffer, and his disciples must follow in his way. This is the type of discipleship he calls us to here. And then he gives us three prepositional clauses. Remember, prepositional clause. In this instance, it starts with the preposition for, verse 24, 25, 26, for, for, for. If you would be my disciple, you must suffer in this manner for this, for that, and for the other reasons. Um, And really, these three, I think, we can summarize under one, one point that they're all making. Verses 24, 25, and 26 are all, in essence, saying that we all, all the human race, we all will know both suffering and glory, but in which order? Everyone will know suffering and glory of some sort, but in which order? So verse 24 in essence, Christ is saying, well, well you, can keep, you can keep from the world giving you the cross and taking your life away now. But then there will be the eternal death in hell. You, you can keep from the suffering now and enjoy life now. But then there will be eternal suffering. But those who give their life for Christ's honor and gospel now will know eternal life to come. Which order? Verse 24. Which order do you want your life and which order do you want your death? Which will be your end? Life or death? Verse 25. You can gain all the riches of the world now, the treasures and pleasures of Egypt and Babylon but they will rust and fade away as completely as the glory that was the gardens of Babylon. How many of you have seen those? None of you. In fact, one of the great historians that was alive around the time of Christ reflected that he was on a road and looked over where the the gardens of Babylon once would have been, and there was nothing but sand. That was only about 600 years later. Not even 600. That was like 300 years later. You can have all these things now to whatever extent a government might let you have these things now. Or inflation might let you have these things now. Your health lets you have these things now. You can have the riches now, but they'll fade away. But those who live not for pleasures now will know the infinite pleasure and riches of Christ of which he has made us co-heirs for all eternity. And verse 26, you can live for the praise of men now, but then be ashamed on the last day at the day of judgment when the king eternal declares from his throne, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Will there ever be more shame felt than in that instant 
Or, verse 26 says, you can know the scorn and the shame of the world for Christ's sake now, and will one day know the praise of that same king when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And what will all the scorn of this world mean then when the name above every name, the voice above every voice says, well done, enter into my rest. The Messiah gives us these incentives to follow him through suffering. The joy and the glory before us is worth it all. But it's just not today. It's worth it all, but it's not today. Unless Jesus comes today, which would be grand. There's one more verse. Verse 27, I believe, is one final encouragement given by Christ to us. We read there, he says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. I think Christ is saying to his apostles, even as he's told them to get ready for suffering and the cross, he's saying to them, the glory isn't as far off as it may seem. You'll get a taste of it soon, even before you finish experiencing suffering. There'll be a taste to give you courage along the suffering path. What does it mean that some of them will see the kingdom? I have five ways we can understand this. Really, four of them are all one, and then there's a, a separate viewpoint. And I think we can, we can actually say they're all accurate to what Christ is saying to the apostles here. First, we, we can look at the context and reflect back on verse 22. Christ said that his suffering will give way to glory, and the third day I will rise again. And except for Judas, the, 11, the other eleven will all see the resurrected Christ in the flesh. Indeed, they'll see him ascend into heaven before they experience the cross themselves. What would be a clearer view of the kingdom of God than the king standing in, in your presence before you and telling you to touch his hand inside? That's the glory of the kingdom of God, the king. Or it could be by way of anticipation, and I think... I think we must acknowledge that in some way, this is what Luke is pointing us to. Anticipation of the immediate next passage. When three of the apostles will go up on a mountain with Christ and they will see Christ in his heavenly glory. Along with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And Peter, James, and John, the representatives of the apostles, that is, God's people through all the ages represented will see the king in his eternal glory. 
Surely Luke wants us to see that by presenting what Christ says here and immediately showing us that the next week they ascend this mountain. Or it could also be the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit on the the church at Pentecost. The church is God's kingdom on earth and the glory of God's kingdom on earth as in the book of Acts with the descent of the Spirit, God dwells in his people. Not, Not in a little physical tent in the middle of your camp, that's amazing, but in Every man, woman, and child who knows the Lord, the Spirit personally dwells. And he is calling out from the Samaritans as well as the Jews, from the Greeks and the Romans, a people to be his own. And this church turns the world upside down. Here we see the kingdom. And other than Judas, and other than James, the brother of John, who dies before the church really extends to the nations, all the rest of the apostles are part of seeing the church go forth to the world. Uh, Peter dying in Rome, having seen uh, all roads lead to and from Rome, right? So if the gospel gets to Rome, it's getting to everywhere else. Andrew, according to tradition, getting as far as Russia. Thomas, as far as India. The kingdom of God before they tasted the cross. Or or, or maybe you think a little more literal scene of the kingdom is important here. In which case, at least John, with his vision that we have, the book of Revelation, and although he's not here, the one born out of time, Paul, with his vision in 2 Corinthians 12, show us that some of them received visions of heaven itself before they died. And only John was commissioned to share that vision with you and I. I think all of these things show us the fullness of what Christ is saying. You will get a taste for the heavenly thing to come, even in this life, in the king and the kingdom. Until that day when you see both consummated at the day of the return of the king. You won't have to go to the cross, the grave without any idea of the glory that is the kingdom of Christ. Have you seen the kingdom? We'll talk about this a little bit more next week. Peter thinks you have. As he talks about in 2 Peter 1, 12 through 21, which we will read next Sunday when we turn to consider the Mount of Transfiguration. John also thinks you've seen the glory of the kingdom of God in the face of Jesus Christ when he recounts for us in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, 
that thanks to the testimony of Scripture through Peter and John and Paul, you have experienced with them the full joy of the king and his kingdom, anticipated and awaited for. And in fact, the book of Revelation gets to this as well. Because most of the book of Revelation, we're watching the church not in glory, but the church in suffering, in discipleship. But all along the way, we're shown the heavenly perspective. What is going on in heaven where the martyrs and saints and angels are? And that to give you a taste of glory as you endure the things mentioned in the rest of the book here below. Well, I I think the better we understand verse 27 as an already experiencing the kingdom, not yet knowing its heavenly fullness, the more we understand that, the more we'll be able to endure all these other things. Already in Christ, the riches of glory are yours. You're not yet experiencing it without sin and Satan attacking you. Already your life is hidden with Christ in God. You still feel pain here below. Already not yet. Christ is calling you to that, to encourage you in the suffering. Already it's all yours in Christ. Suffer with him now. Suffer for him, I should say. Now his suffering is done. Suffer for him now, knowing that in him you have absolute security of joy and glory to come. If we remember that, we won't play the victim card as much. We won't be discouraged as frequently. We have a tendency to want to live out a victorious Christian life attitude. By that, that could mean a number of things, I realize. But you know, under that kind of attitude, you might have something like the health and wealth gospel, right? It's going to be absolute joy and victory and everything you could ever desire if you just have faith now. Well, and then you, then you don't get the raise this year. Then you're, you do get the diagnosis this year. You thought you had faith. How, how well do you suffer then? Or are you discouraged? Or a type of mentality that uh, our, Christian, our Christian life is going to be one of such glorious gospel victory that the, the world is going to be converted. The whole world. No, notice that When in Acts it says the apostles, the world says the apostles are turning the world upside down. They were still a minority and they were still being persecuted. Uh, Apparently the apostles didn't understand uh, victory in Christ with the gospel going forth to mean that parades would be held in your honor. 
that other parades would be canceled because everyone was converted. But when we have that kind of mentality, how quickly we can say, is is Christ failing me in some way? Because the Christian life was supposed to be different than this. And he doesn't seem to be doing his part. I'm doing my part. We always forget our sin in this equation, right? I'm doing my part. I'm believing. I'm trying to be a disciple. And we, again, get discouraged. But when we remember what Christ is teaching us here, already all these things are yours. Not yet do you get the complete joy of them. Now is the suffering, later the glory. Then when we suffer, we'll say, the glory is yet to come. And we might add, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Come. And until then, give me strength to suffer for you.